large, I'm Leonard Lopate. In December 1971, Richard Dixon signed a new program into law, which he called the War on Cancer. He said, the same kind of concentrated effort that split the atom and took man to the moon should be turned toward conquering this dread disease. Now, 50 years and over $100 billion later, leading experts in the cancer field, physicians, policymakers, researchers, and pharmaceutical engineers have reflected on what that legislation has accomplished and what has yet to be achieved in a new collection of essays called A New Deal for Cancer, Lessons from a 50-Year War. Joining us now are the book's editors, Abby Argluck and Charles S. Fuchs. Um, She is a uh, professor of law at Yale Law School, and Dr. Fuchs is a senior vice president of Roach and Genentech, a biotechnology company. The book is published by Public Affairs, and I'm pleased that it brings Abby Gluck and Charles Fuchs to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now, how did this collect... I, I, we're going to have a bit of a problem, obviously, because we're on the phone. So <laughs> I, I suspect at times the two of you will want to answer a question, but let's try to keep it as, as uh, clean as possible. How did this collection of essays by a variety of authors come about, and what topics did you particularly want to cover? So I can take that one. Um, thanks for having us. We are delighted to be here and to talk to you about the book. Um, The essays came about because um, in the course of collaborating on cancer policy, while Charlie was the head of the Yale Cancer Center and I run the Health Law Center at Yale Law School, um, we were looking for a book just like this, a book that delved beyond the science and beyond the study of any one disease, like many cancer books do, to actually think about the policy politics uh, and law of cancer. I actually was invited to um, one of the Biden Cancer Moonshot Summit meetings um, and was struck by how much interest there was back in that was you know back in 2016 at thinking about cancer from a policy perspective, not just a science perspective, but how little there was actually written on it. Uh, so Charlie and I decided that we were going to have a convening um, of experts to try to get beyond the science, as we say, and think about cancer from sort of a 360 degree angle of business, economics, governance, and so on. Hmm. Uh, we had an extraordinary response. 700 people. Uh, came to Yale for that conference, including Nobel Prize laureates, Pulitzer Prize winners, uh, heads of cancer centers, and so on. It was the largest conference on cancer in Connecticut history. And there was so much interest in it that we thought that we just had to turn the highlights into this book. Ah. So, but the essays were written specifically for this book, or at least uh, were adapted from what people said at, at that conference. They're totally original. They are yeah. sort of the ideas came from the topics that arose. So at our conference, for instance, we had a panel on sort of the business and economics of cancer. And then we went to two of our panelists, Ed Benz, who was the head of Dana-Farber, and Barbara McEnany, who was president of the AMA, and said, you know, we'd really love you to write a chapter on these topics and expand on what we discussed at the conference. And they put together uh, with this totally original set of chapters that are really first of their kind in the cancer space. Now, Charles, cancer represents many different types of diseases. What do they all have in common? And should we be saying cancers? Well, Leonard, I I think that uh, you're exactly right. Um, You know, when the War on Cancer Act, as it's often called, was signed into law in 1971, I don't think we fully appreciated the sheer complexity of this. I mean, it was considered at its time the equivalent of a moonshot. I mean, it was in the wake of the first man on the moon. 
But what we've learned is, is that cancer is not one disease, but hundreds. Hmm. And I think it's not simply that it's lung cancer and breast cancer and kidney cancer. And prostate cancer. But, and or prostate. And but pancreatic, fact, breast, yeah. yes, melanoma. Well, there's that complexity, but it's even more complex. Because within lung cancer, we know that there are many different subtypes defined by what are the genetic drivers of that particular patient's cancer. And not only does it influence the aggressiveness and the biology of that cancer, of that lung cancer, but it actually dictates what therapy we should or should not be using. And so it is really that understanding that is now taking us to the next generation of therapies, as well as our ability to better prevent it. In 1970, when the war on cancer began, cancer was the nation's second leading cause of death. Has that changed? It has. In fact, as you know, I think what happened in the second half of the 20th century was an incredibly successful effort to uh, diminish the leading cause of mortality among Americans, which was heart disease. I think both in prevention and treatment, there's been great strides. It's not to say it doesn't remain an important problem. Well, the, screening methods, to... the screening methods have improved, mammograms, colonoscopies, and, and others that have been developed over, the to over time. They have. I think you know the past 50 years have witnessed great progress in prevention, in understanding biology, in treatment. But let's be clear, this is hardly the time to declare victory. And Abby, uh, cancer remains the number one killer for Hispanic and Asian Americans of women in their 50s and everyone ages 60 to 80. And why do African Americans suffer from the highest death rates of any U.S. racial or ethnic group for most cancers? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up this topic. I think our contribution in this book on the subject of disparities is incredibly important, um, highly original. Uh, we have several different chapters that talk about cancer disparities. One by Otis Brawley and co-authors uh, basically takes issue with the idea that cancer disparities are, this, are the, uh, caused by biology. Um, they're caused by sort of social structures, including institutional racism that contribute to lack of access and comprehensive care for different populations. Uh, Dr. Brawley's chapter lays out statistics showing, for example, at one point that breast cancer rates between white and black women were the same, and they diverged over time um, because insufficient access, unequal access to early screening, which is critical for early detention and treatment, and then uh, unequal access to insurance, which of course is a critical driver of the kind of care that you receive. And quite frankly, some of the implicit bias in the system that leads doctors, sub-doctors, uh, to take the complaints but there of minority still, patients less seriously. But aren't there still some inherent genetic differences among groups? For example, mutations of the, the BRCA, is it BRCA genes are higher for women in Ashkenazi Jewish uh, populations. Um, are That's there any exactly analogous? Right, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, genetics does define why certain ethnicities, races have either a different propensity to cancer or alternatively a different outcome, or maybe a worse outcome. And BRCA is an issue. And frankly, not only is it an issue for breast cancer in Ashkenazic Jews, it's actually an issue for African-Americans. And um, so I think there's no question biology is important, but to Abby's point and to the point that's made in the book by several of our authors, access to care is 
the dominant driver for disparities in outcome. You have to understand biology, but it's meaningless if people don't have equal access. Can we yeah, say no, a really interesting uh, a really interesting uh, idea that Otis throws out in the book is to consider two women, one in Massachusetts and one in the southeast, a, a part of the United States. Maybe both are Jewish women, Ashkenazi women. Mm-hmm. Uh, women in the southeast would have, uh, by the statistics, probably worse cancer outcomes because of their worse uh, insurance position uh, and their you know respective lack of access to treatments. So. That's what that's what we're trying to drive home. And part of the message the authors are trying to drive home is that these issues are solvable. They can be addressed. We can't just throw up our hands and say that this is a matter of biology, that, you know, we have another chapter in which co-authors argue that government, state and local, as well as the federal government, have an obligation to really try to address these disparities. Can we say that cancer is also primarily a disease of aging? Absolutely. I mean, aging is the leading risk factor for cancer. And in fact, although we've gotten better, the burden of cancer continues to increase simply because the U.S. population is aging. So as we, yeah, so as we learn to cure some cancers, we actually just make people more vulnerable when they get older. You know, that's exactly right. And in fact, Sid Mukherjee, who's a you know phenomenal author who wrote our first mm-hmm. chapter, speaks about the fact that in many respects, we have to think about we are all vulnerable to cancer. You know, today, 39.5% of the U.S. population will have cancer at some point in their lifetime. So, it, you know, it, this is an issue that affects all of us. Now, Sid Arthur Mukherjee is a Pulitzer Prize winning author, and he writes about the anxiety of being under constant diagnostic surveillance. What effect mm-hmm. does a risk-based culture create? Yeah, he has this wonderful metaphor called Cancerland. And he says <laughs> that, you know, in the next 50 years, we run the risk of being in a situation where all of us are thinking of ourselves as inhabitants of Cancerland, whether we're waiting to be diagnosed or we're in constant surveillance or we're being treated, or we're survivors of cancer. And he's sort of urging us to figure out ways to balance that anxiety and have some kind of risk tolerance um, to sort of move away from an environment where uh, we are thinking about cancer as you know, a, a sort of looming cloud that we are all trying to avoid uh, and trying to sort of acclimate um, this disease, this chronic disease into our daily lives without having it be taken over. Um, it's, it's a really powerful chapter. Are we now able to identify cancer-free people who may face the prospect of cancer in the future? I think we're getting much better at identifying people at risk. Um, Pre-cancerous conditions, do we know? Is it, would they point? Would they be a suggestion? Well, I think we we have some techniques. For instance, in colon cancer, where we know that the vast majority come from polyps colonoscopy and other tests have the ability to find those precancerous lesions, but that's not the case for all cancers. So clearly a lot more improvements in technology have to occur if we're going to be better at preventing cancer. Yeah, we are not doing as well with brain cancers and other nervous system cancers. Uh, we, uh, we're not doing all that well with lung cancer still. But lung cancer, of course, um, is often connected to cigarette smoking. Why do public health campaigns often fail to have their desired out- outcome? After all, we have higher prices on cigarettes and anti-smoking campaigns. Uh, you would have thought that they would have lowered the number of smokers, but it, obviously they haven't eliminated them. 
think a real a real problem in this space is the uh, view that public health and prevention is somehow separate from the science and medicine of cancer treatment. Sort of an approach that thinks about public health and prevention as fully integrated with um, you know diagnostics and uh, therapeutics for cancer would be much more effective, both in terms of training attention from the population on that approach, but also in terms of getting money. So for example, Rosa DeLauro's chapter, Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, who's the chair of the Appropriations Committee, she points out that the CDC's budget for cancer care prevention services is something like $6 million, something like $300 million, whereas the budget of the National Cancer Institute within the NIH is almost $7 billion. So we have underfunded prevention. We've given it short shrift. Our experience with COVID makes clear that our public health infrastructure needs a lot of work. Um, in the chapter on cancer pricing, Zeke Emanuel and Carrie Gross point out that we could lower the cost of cancer by lowering the amount of cancer, but with the number one strategy being increased tobacco prevention strategies. In well, another chapter, yeah, another chapter talks about states some states that have done very aggressive tobacco prevention through their public health programs and others that haven't. And you see marked differences across those states in cancer cases and outcomes. Also, pesticides have been linked to cancer. Uh, can we tell people to stop using pesticides? You know, I think that continues to be an evolving field of science in terms of understanding what are the chemicals that truly affect cancer risks. And there's been some misinformation, but you're absolutely right. I mean, there are chemicals that do it. We need, I think to Abby's point, we need more investment in understanding those uh, those risk factors, those exposures, and then obviously eliminating them. Well, are diagnoses of precancerous conditions helpful to the patient or do they just create anxiety and worry? Are there risks of overdiagnosis? I think it's a great point. I think for many cancers, Finding them early is critical. For instance, pancreatic cancer, which is, as you may know, is a very difficult to treat cancer. We know that finding it early is essential if we're gonna make inroads. But then for prostate cancer, where you can actually have elements of prostate cancer where it'll actually never affect a man's life. And so finding those is counterproductive. You know, in fact, 80, about 80% of 80 year old men have prostate cancer, they don't know it, and probably oh. isn't ever gonna affect their lives. So there is a mix depending on the cancer, and we have to be smarter about our early detection approaches. Oh, now you got me worried, I'm 81. Well, uh, my guests on today's Leonard Lopez at Large are Abby R. Gluck and Charles S. Fuchs. They're, the book that they've edited, A New Deal for Cancer, uh, lessons from a 50-year war. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. The most common cancer treatments, surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation therapy have been in use for quite a while. But when did immunotherapy get added to that list? It's a great question. And in fact, you know, for frankly a century, scientists and physicians have tried to figure out how to leverage the immune system to fight cancer with really uh, a lot of failures. And really over the past decade, what has emerged is a, a fundamental understanding of the biology of the immune system as it relates to cancer. And having done that, a series of targets that have effectively been developing leading to drugs 
that actually activate the immune system to kill cancer. And these drugs are now really the fourth arm of what you've described for cancer treatment. It's a revolution in cancer care. We're really at the beginning of this. It helps some patients, but not all. But this, in part, is the future of cancer therapy. And what kinds of cancers respond well to immunotherapy? Well, among them, it includes lung cancer and kidney cancer and melanoma skin cancer. And, and Are they related in any other way, or has it just happened that, that they're the ones that are affected by immunotherapies? There is one common theme, uh, which actually, uh, not to get technical, but cancers that have a large number of genetic mutations in the cancer are more susceptible to immune therapies. And there's an, there's an increasing understanding of why that is, such that we can start to develop immune therapies for those cancers that are not responding. Does uh, immune therapy have fewer side effects than other treatments? I think. And are there any risks? Yes. I think, honestly, as compared to the treatments that we were using 30 years ago, yes, I do think they're this, the most available immunotherapies are better tolerated. They have some risk because when you activate a person's immune system, you do have a, a small but legitimate risk that it could activate the immune system against healthy cells. But that's something we can treat and it sometimes even prevent uh, because overall, I think the impact of these immunotherapies has been extraordinary. Are researchers testing ways to fight cancers using more than one type of treatment? Absolutely. In fact, they, these immunotherapies are being combined with the more standard therapies, even including chemotherapy to patients' benefit. And then I think as we're developing even more targeted therapies, we're combining all of these things together because combinatorial, combination therapy is really the way to ultimately achieve greater success in cancer therapy. Abby, why did uh, the, you two decide to devote as much attention to the business and economics of cancer as to the medical advances? So that's a great question. Um, one reason we did is that we could not find a thing written about it anywhere else. Uh, I, for one, have been very curious about the business and economics of cancer for a couple of reasons. Uh, it's part of the broader health policy conversation. You can't have a conversation about cancer pricing, which, of course, is a very topical conversation, without understanding the business and economics of cancer. Um, and there's a whole separate conversation about mergers and acquisitions and consolidation in the healthcare space that also directly relates to the business and economics of cancer. So we thought it was really important to try to uh, mine through that category. And we we're really delighted with uh, the chapters that we have and what we've learned from them. Why are the, the prices of new drugs rising at such an alarming rate? Charlie, do you want to take that one? Yeah, you want to, sure. you want to take yeah, that, no, Charles? I, I, you I, said you're in the business? Yeah, I, you know, I think that there's no question that the costs of cancer research and drug development have increased dramatically compared to when I started in cancer research more than 30 years ago. The technologies are incredible. The ability to make, to sort of manufacture, devise more complex antibodies, uh, new drugs is extraordinary, but the cost of these technologies are increasing. But I do believe that over time we'll get better on it. And I'll, and I'll give you one really good example, Leonard. 
as you know, the Human Genome Project, which was started in the 90s, was going to sequence the DNA of one person at a cost of $8 billion. Today, we can sequence a person's DNA for $1,000. So we, we know these technologies do get cheaper over time as we get more efficient. And I think the system will get there. No. Would you say that cancer has transitioned from an acute disease where most patients die to often chronic disease? Uh, but, the, of course, that would entail higher costs for monitoring and treatment. Um, I think it has. It's, it is emerging as a chronic disease, and we definitely see a lot more cancer survivors who were helping through the post-cancer treatment time frame. But there's no question, it still is an acute disease that we have to grapple with. So progress is being made. I think we're having people living longer and better with cancer, people being cured of cancer. Um, but there's a lot more to be done. Aren't many of the most effective new drugs so precisely targeted that they're only effective for a small number of patients? It varies, but you're exactly right which is um, we're, we're now in the process of developing uh, treatments where it might benefit 1% to 3% of patients with a particular cancer. And we don't want to stifle that progress, but realizing that's a pretty complicated development path. But for those individuals who harbor that mutation, who have that target on their cancer, it's life-saving. Yeah, if I could jump in on this point, I think it's really relevant into, into returning us back to that question of the business and economics of cancer. So a bunch of our authors tackle this issue about sort of the acceleration of our knowledge of cancer leading to more targeted drugs. But as you note, that results in drugs that will be potentially less profitable for companies because they will not serve large populations. So uh, several of our authors have suggested that this is precisely a role for government to sort of step in, subsidize and invest uh, where the market would normally produce these kinds of life-saving treatments because they serve too few people. That's part of our theme. The whole idea of a new deal for cancer is thinking about the role of the government and how government can be a helper and not an obstacle. Has this been included in the, the new proposed legislation? In the ARPA-H? In, the, in President Biden's proposed yes. legislation on, on ARPA-H? The concept... Uh, is, 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 is there, the idea that, that government will help facilitate sort of high-risk, high-reward projects that the market itself would normally produce. So this is exactly, um, exactly the space in which government can really have an enormous impact. You know, as an example from this, uh, you may find interesting, is in 1983, Congress passed a statute called the Orphan Drug Act, um, which uh, essentially... Um, provided benefits to companies uh, that would produce these uh, cancer therapies and other drugs that only serve a very small population. I believe, Charlie, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe they got sort of a voucher that gave them a fast track process for another drug in their queue. So it incentivized them to produce these potentially less profitable drugs. What's the failure rate for drugs that enter phase one clinical trials? Yeah, the failure rate is extraordinary, Leonard. So for a, a, a cancer drug entering into phase one, the first phase of clinical patient investigation, the chance of success is somewhere in the range of 1% to 4%. Wow. So is it reasonable that investors in drugs that turn out to be successful expect 
a high rate of return, considering how much money they lose when the vast majority of drugs turn out to be unsatisfactory? There's no question. I think that uh, investors have high expectations, and they should, as should patients. And we have to figure out how to do better than have a you know success rate of in the single digits. So I think key to this is increasingly understanding the biology, understanding the target, so that when we get into the, the, the patients, we actually have a higher likelihood of success. Abby, don't some cancer patients and their physicians feel the need to exhaust every means of, of experimental treatments to fight to the, the very end? Uh, yes. And I think is that's it true. possible medically and ethically to cut off expensive new treatments that only offer small possibilities of success? So you're, you're sort of getting to the heart of uh, the, sort of the core of the American healthcare system, right? Our, our healthcare system is a system in which you know, you get the health care you can pay for, and we generally don't deny patients health care that they want if their insurance will pay for it, if the doctors will authorize it. It's a long-running debate, you know, and it puts us in comparison with other countries that have more of a health care rationing system or do more to talk people out of uh, Herculean measures at the end of life. Um, there are statistics in the health policy world as a whole, not just in cancer, you know, about the vast majority of expenses uh, healthcare expenses in a person's lifetime are spent within the last six months at the end of life, uh, now, as opposed to over the course of the whole life. Uh, yeah, in another part of your career, aren't you uh, a special counsel with the Biden administration's COVID-19 response team? Uh, my service has just, has just ended, actually. Uh -huh. today, today is my last official day, but I have uh, concluded my service, but I've had a wonderful year. Um, serving in that position. Uh, this book was obviously written completely separate from that and is not part of that effort. Yeah, but th that had uh, COVID has not been linked to cancer. We could be grateful for that, right? Oh, so, yeah, we should be grateful for, yes, many things, and COVID has not been linked to cancer as far as we know. But well, I will say, I'm just talking about COVID and uh, taking another chapter from someone else in the book, not from me. Um, there have been some really interesting comparisons um, with thinking about what the next phase of the cancer effort might look like, the ARPA-H, and taking a page out of the kind of, you know, government investment, fast-track research development um, that characterized the sort of extraordinary development of the COVID vaccines. No. Um, and so COVID has been held out as an example, including, for that matter, by Greg Simon, who was a former head of the Obama Biden Cancer Moonshot is one of our authors about how we could think about being more aggressive in sort of targeted research, a high risk, high reward in the cancer space. Well, COVID has uh, been highly mutative. It mutates a lot. Uh, do we see lots of mutations within the, the various spectrums of cancers? Absolutely. No, mutations, in fact, in, in the DNA of the cancer is what's largely driving it. And uh, so we could probably never, never conquer it completely because there's always going to be a new one. It, you know, that is part of the problem, which is resistance to therapy. And what these can't these these cancers, these cells are so able to mutate that what they can do is you can hit the right target. But then another secondary mutation arises that leads to resistance. And this is something we have to develop. Uh, both a way to prevent resistance and to also quickly identify resistance so we can pivot on a new therapy. 
You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guests are Abby Argluck, uh, a professor of law at Yale Law School and of internal medicine at Yale School of Medicine. She's currently serving, oh, she was recently serving as special counsel with the Biden administration's COVID-19 response team. Charles Fuchs is a senior vice president at Roche and Genentech, a biotechnology company. He's a former director of the Yale Cancer Center. Shadows are falling and I'm running out of breath heart for a while If I leave you it doesn't mean I love you any less Keep me in your heart for a while When you get up in the morning and you see that crazy sun Keep me in your heart for a while we're back with my guests, Abby Gluck and Charles Fuchs, editors of a new book called A New Deal for Cancer, Lessons from a 50-Year War. It is published by, uh, well, who is publishing this? I, I, have, I have it written down somewhere, but I just suddenly misplaced that. Oh, yes. It's Public um, Affairs. It's public Affairs. Public it's, affairs. A, yeah, it's Hatchet Books and Public yeah. Affairs. Yeah. Now, we've been talking about the expense of drugs, but what about the new technologies to fight cancer, uh, precision radiation, complex imaging, stem cell transplantation. Um, they're incredibly expensive as well. They absolutely are. And one in particular that, that we describe in the book that our authors describe are something called CAR T cells, which is where you actually remove, you, you take out immune cells from patients in their blood you then take them to the lab and genetically engineer them to target the cancer. So you re-engineer those immune cells and give them back. And they are actually quite impressive in their benefit. But to your point, the technology is complicated, there are side effects, and it's extremely expensive. And in contrast to these high-cost technologies, don't cancer patients need many essential services that cannot be reimbursed at a high rate? Consultations with their doctors, palliative care, and mental health services. Um, I um, had a friend who unfortunately has died of cancer. She traveled all over the world to consult with specialists, any number of whom... Uh, told her that they'd never lost a patient. Mm. Mm. So this, um, this topic you're raising is, is super important, and it does go back to what we were talking about earlier, about the business and economics of cancer. Um, one of the chapters in the book, Ed Benz, who is the head of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, um, talks about how all of these essential sort of low-profit services that you have just mentioned, including things like second opinion consults, hospice care, you know, the non-big-ticket um, item treatments, that there are big-ticket treatments subsidized those critical services that all cancer patients need. So one of the points that he's been making in the chapter, which I think is so original and so important, is that this phenomenon of cross-subsidization really needs to make us think about that how was, we talk about cutting cancer prices. That was Edgar, right? Edward Benz in his essay, cross-subsidization. Yeah, 
Yeah, Costa, as we're bent, uh, you know, the point just to sort of flesh it out so people understand is that people talk all the time about the high cost of cancer drugs and uh, cancer technologies, but you can't cut those in a vacuum because you have to recognize that when you cut those, that extra profit has been used to cross-subsidize all of the important, less profitable cancer services that you just mentioned, Leonard. Uh, so I think that was a really important contribution to our conversation. What about health insurance coverage? One of the strongest predictors of access to cancer care and health cancer outcomes. Uh, well, we absolutely have to do better there. We still have 12 states that haven't expanded Medicaid, leaving a huge coverage gap for some of our uh, Americans with the least means. Um, Robin Yabroff's chapter in the book talks about uh, the fact that patients who are uninsured or uninsured, underinsured, have worse cancer outcomes. Even patients that don't have continuous insurance, who have gaps in their insurance, tend to have worse cancer outcomes than others. So this health insurance question, question that I spend a lot of time on outside of the cancer space, is a fundamental question about health justice and equity and goes directly to the issue of disparities as well. Now, we get lots of uh, ads on uh, television about uh, cancer care at major academic centers and major hospitals. Uh, can they, do they coordinate with small community centers to reduce patient travel time? You know, this is increasingly an opportunity that uh, our authors identify, which is only about 12% of cancer patients get their care in urban tertiary academic centers, and about 80% get their care in the community. And so we need to do better in making sure that those centers in the community have access to the best information, knowledge, expertise, technology, therapies. Uh, and I can say, as, as when I was leading the Yale Cancer Center, that's something we really did across uh, Connecticut and New England is to align ourselves with those community settings because we actually had one mantra, which is we didn't want any patient to have to travel more than 30 minutes mm. to get their cancer care. And so that means bringing those advancements to the community. Well, Emily traveled to Germany and Cleveland and <laughs> a lot of other places as well. Um, mm. Now, how might obesity increase the risk of cancer? It's, it's, a, it's an important point, which is that albeit we, we've identified smoking as an important risk factor to work on, because of the increasing rates of obesity in the U.S. and because it is a potent risk factor for cancer, it's now going to emerge as the leading risk factor outside of uh, you know, age and other things. And so working on reducing rates of obesity in the country is going to be important in our ability to prevent cancer. Well, what about the foods and, uh, and drinks that we, uh, we have? For example, uh, I've heard that uh, drinking more milk, coffee, and tea is good for us. Uh, you know, I think eating the, veggies. The role, yeah, the role of diet beyond just simple overeating obesity is important. And it's an area that we've really, in my career, have spent a lot of time sorting out. Diet is important. Physical activity, uh, which we realize for a lot of things is good. Physical activity is among the most potent preventers of major cancers. So walking so, or even doing something like yoga is a, a good ideas? Any form of activity, uh, Leonard, that uh, you're willing to do is a cancer preventer. And I gather 
sleep is a uh, is a major factor as well. You try to get as many hours sleep as possible, but some of us just can't sleep seven or eight hours. Well, there's no question that you know this is a major problem among Americans, which is inadequate sleep, which increases the risk of a variety of of diseases, heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. Um, and I think it's something we we clearly need to uh, assess in terms of our public health messaging. Now, is cancer more prevalent in the United States than in other uh, industrialized countries? Cancer is ubiquitous around the globe. It's certainly a major problem, and it is the leading cause of mortality uh, among Americans under the age of 80. But it's a big problem worldwide. And, you know, for certain countries that don't have access to the advancements we have in, in more developed countries, you know, their ability to prevent and treat is extremely limited. Environmental exposures uh, are outside of our individual control. What are some of the most dangerous carcinogens that are present in the air and in drinking water and in building materials? You know, obviously, you know, among the most commonly referred to and important is asbestos, which is a, a, a risk factor for lung cancer, as well as a less common cancer called mesothelioma. And, uh, you know, as you know, through much of the 20th century, that was ubiquitous in buildings. There's been, I think, uh, a lot of effort on legislation and other things to eliminate asbestos, as well as efforts when you eliminate it to do it in a safe fashion. But these are the things we have to tackle. But uh, why have government regulations failed to protect us better? I think that to some extent, um, we don't fully understand the environmental risk factors. And, you know, I think Abby said it, right? We, you know, our budget for cancer prevention is minuscule in the U.S. compared to other aspects of what we do in the sort of cancer research, cancer treatment exercise. So we probably do need to invest more in understanding these things. And Abby, why do policies often emphasize diagnosis and, and treatment of diseases rather than prevention and public health interventions? You know, there are a couple of sort of uh, factors that tend to skew the public policy conversation. Uh, public health as sort of a policy win has had a, a very uh, sad history. Um, it is much easier for legislators to uh, zero in on things that are tangible, uh, particular diagnoses, treatments, funding. Sources often have advocates in Congress, sort of senators or, out, or outside groups or patient groups that are advocating for a particular treatment, a particular drug, um, just do better in Congress. Political scientists for years use this phrase called the fire alarm theory of Congress, right? You can't make Congress do something until the house is on fire. Public health is amorphous, and because it hasn't been concretized in a way that makes it attractive to Congress or legislators can come home and say, hey, we just appropriated $7 billion uh, to amorphous things like protecting you from environmental carcinogens, um, until legislators can sort of talk about that as a win, um, it's going to be really difficult. There's another uh, quirk of Congress, which is how legislation is scored. Uh, our legislation in Congress has to be budget neutral. Uh, and ironically, uh, some public health strategies score very high on the congressional budget score. Uh, they, uh, they lead to um, people living longer, which ironically 
raises their price because more people are on Medicare and so on. So there's sort of a um, unfortunate aspect to how uh, federal legislation is scored as a matter of the budget that has traditionally skewed legislation against preventative measures as opposed to tangible diagnostics and treatments. I've always wondered why uh, we've been talking about smoking and diet, uh, exposure to the sun, uh, to dangerous chemicals, why some people are affected but not others. Do we have any idea why only some of the people who are exposed to carcinogens get cancer? It's a, it's a great question that we're trying to sort through because you're absolutely right. We hear about stories of people who are exposed either by their personal habits or through other exposures. Or Agent Orange when people were in Vietnam, for example. That's exactly right. Our suspicion is that we all inherit different genes from our parents, and some of those genes metabolize these carcinogens differently. And some can eliminate from them from our body quickly, so we're not exposed to them, and others don't eliminate them. And so I think it's those things that probably predispose us more if we're exposed than others. And so understanding that exposure gene interaction is an ongoing area of research. My guests are Charles S. Fuchs and Abby Argluck the editors of a new book called A New Deal for Cancer, Lessons from a 50-Year War, published by Public Affairs. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. How do viruses like human papilloma, papillomavirus, HPV, cause cancer? Since cancer isn't usually transmittable, how does HPV pass easily between sexual partners? Well, you know, as you point out, HPV is a highly contagious uh, virus through sexual contact. And what it does is because viruses by themselves are inert unless they live in a human cell, it's that existence in a human cell that changes both the genetics and the signaling of the cell to promote it to cancer. And HPV, as you know, is a risk factor for cervical cancer, mm -hmm. for penile cancer, and for head and neck cancer, uh, you know, cancer in the mouth and oropharynx. And so, uh, pre but prevention is possible. And as pointed out by our authors, the uptake of the HPV vaccine has been good, but inadequate. Now, why is it recommended that the HPV vaccine be administered to children as young as 11 or 12? Because that's the time to intervene before they're sexually active. Right. But some parents are reluctant to have their children vaccinated, as if not just for this, but for COVID. It's also something else. It's sort of admitting your child's going to be sexually active. So oh. psychologically, it's a difficult bridge to cross for some parents to say, you want to give your child this vaccine. It's sort of an implicit recognition that in the near future, that child is going to be sexually active. And a lot of parents you know, have a hard time crossing that threshold. Uh, this is another kind of sort of low-cost, highly effective prevention strategy um, that, you know, has been effective but hasn't hit the mainstream as much as it should. What's the origin of the White House cancer moonshot from January 2016? What, what led to that? Oh, um, so this is not covered in our book. And so, Charlie, I'll do from my own recollection at the time, and Charlie can uh, supplement. You know, as you know, um, President Biden 
um, has viewed the, the cause of cancer or something that is very personal to him. Um, you know, he lost his son to cancer uh, and he was, yes. And he was, you know, devoted to the study of cancer and intent on doing something very important in the last nine months of the administration. And president Obama launched this moonshot, uh, made then vice president Biden sort of the head of the moonshot and appointed one of our authors, Greg Simon, uh, as the director uh, the, the events that I attended at the time, I was very lucky to be one of the few lawyers that were at these events were pretty extraordinary. They brought together uh, people from academia, from government, from the private sector, even from law, people like me, to sort of think about in a sort of silo breaking down kind of way, um, what can we do now and quickly to move the needle? Um, it, it was, you know, as Greg Simon details in the book, um, what it shows rather uniquely is the very special power of the presidency. When the president calls people to action, when the president asks industry to share information among industries that don't normally share such information, uh, extraordinary things can happen. Um, and that's what you know came out of the Biden moonshot at its best. Um, Charlie may have more to offer from his experience as a physician at that time. Uh, no, absolutely, Abby. And I, I had the privilege of serving when I was uh, both at Harvard and Yale on one of the blue ribbon panels for the for the, the moonshot. And I, it really did bring disparate individual disciplines together to work on selected problems. And I think it is it really is the power of the presidency. I think when it is a priority and when you bring these groups together, you know, when you've essentially said, I need you to work on this and to resource it properly, you can make a difference. It sounds cliche, but this theme of fragmentation is very important. You know, throughout the book and throughout health policy in general, we have a problem of fragmentation. We have different sectors of the population uh, with different kinds of insurance, which leads to disparities. We have different elements of the population that have roles to play in the production of cancer drugs. We have even have different federal agencies across the government that each have discrete roles to play and sometimes get in each other's way. Um, what I remember President, then Vice President Biden saying, my job here is to get things out of the way. I remember he said that several times uh, in 2016 about the cancer moonshot. And one theme that comes out of the book is that that was very prescient. That's sort of a continuing theme about eliminating red tape, pushing people to work together and breaking down financial and other disincentives toward information sharing. I'll give you one quick example, Leonard, which we have a totally different topic. Uh, some uh, leading physicians of Memorial Sloan Kettering have written a wonderful chapter on precision medicine and the importance of sharing genetic data from patients uh, among many different kinds of medical practices and practitioners uh, to get as much information as possible about that population to advance research and treatment. And there are a lot of legal and institutional barriers to sharing that kind of information. And so potentially low-hanging fruit is legal reform that would actually address those barriers and make information sharing a lot easier. I mentioned earlier that some cancers are being treated more effectively than others. Prostate cancer, for example, uh, melanoma, uh, breast cancer, although that often requires the removal of a breast, uh, uh, uterine cancer. But then uh, we're not doing as well with leukemia, with uh, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, with bladder cancer. Um, we, and then, uh, or, or um, colorectal cancer, uh, and then uh, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, 
uh, brain cancer, other nervous cancers, uh, nervous system cancers, uh, we don't have much effectiveness at all in, in treating them. Uh, is that because they're just all so different? They are very different. And I think that, you know, two examples that you highlight, which is our brain tumors and pancreatic cancer are among the most difficult to treat. And where we really have a rudimentary understanding of the biology of these cancers. And that's really at, at the heart of it. I think for many of the other cancers you mentioned, and I would include lymphoma and bladder cancer, we are better. We actually have, I think, much better treatments and outcomes than we did just a decade ago. But for those two cancers, for instance, pancreatic and brain tumors, we need, we really do need to better understand what are the what are the molecular and genetic drivers and how do we target them? And that is the subject of work. And I will say that uh, in the last decade, Congress actually included in legislation that the National Cancer Institute needs to give a priority for grant applications focused on those difficult to treat cancers. Well, I mentioned in my introduction that it, it's been 50 years since Richard Nixon signed the, the bill, the War on Cancer, into law, and we've spent over $100 billion. That's a lot of money. Why are we still having in the dark about so many of these things? Well, I think I actually think we've made enormous strides in terms of what we've done with cancer. I mean, it in when Nixon signed that act, only one in three patients would actually survive their cancer. We're now in the U.S. at a point that it's roughly 65 to 70 percent. That's still inadequate, but we're making great strides and we need to do better. I think one thing that when Nixon signed that bill, and you may know, uh, Leonard, that the idea was we were going to eliminate cancer by the bicentennial, that is 1976, which was pretty naive thinking. So, um, you know, and in fact, one of the critics that we quote in our introduction pointed out that, uh, you know, the idea that we would achieve that kind of success was like thinking that we would land a man on the moon without understanding Newton's laws of gravity. <laughs> so we, we really do need to understand better. We know a lot more over the past 50 years, but I will tell you as, as a physician, as a researcher, as the spouse of a cancer survivor, we still have a lot more to do, and we've got to further increase the pace of progress. And we have just about a minute left, but Abby, I just wanted to get back to COVID in a way. Did our experience with COVID reveal what we already knew about po political culture defeating public health strategy as well as what we discussed earlier, existing racial and class disparities? You know, I think in general, COVID has laid bare a lot of deficiencies in our system that were there before, but because COVID hit so many of us and hit us all at the same time, uh, it really brought those issues to the fore. And as you say, those issues are questions about inadequate access to healthcare and insurance, uh, intolerable racial disparities, different approaches from different states, some that do more for their population, some that do less for their population. Um, and yes, you're right, political backlash against proven public health and prevention strategies, whether that's tobacco cessation uh, or vaccination. Uh, COVID has laid those bare, but all of those topics are covered in this book and mm -hmm. apply to cancer as well. Uh, it's one of the reasons we wanted to bring the cancer conversation into the policy space, and we're absolutely delighted that we've been able to talk to you about it and further the conversation here. And my great thanks to Abby Gluck, 
professor of law at Yale Law School, and Dr. Charles Fuchs, the senior vice president at Roach and Genentech, which is a biotechnology company. They are the editors of uh, a, a book called A New Deal for Cancer, Lessons from a 50-Year War. It is published by Public Affairs. Uh, it's been a great pleasure talking with you, even though it's such a disturbing topic. Thank you well, thank so much. You. And that brings us to the end of this show. Special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman for preparing today's interview. If you would like to check out more about one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access our archives at WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. You'll also find links to our over 500 past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. But right now, I need to ask you to consider supporting WBAI as we struggle to stay afloat during the, this difficult time. We're asking all of our listeners who haven't already taken that step to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's 212-209-2950. WBI is the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, but that means we rely on the support of listeners like you, quite frankly, to stay on the air. It's the way this whole crazy experiment in completely listener-supported radio works. So if you like the sound of, of no corporate overlords telling us how to do this show, why not come on board and help us to keep it going? Uh, if we were on a commercial station, there probably would have been some pharmaceutical companies who would have been concerned about some things that we might have said. Uh, we may not have all the state-of-the-art cutting-edge technology here at BAI, but we are refreshingly independent, so please... Call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org to keep Leonard Lopate at Large coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And from all of us at the station, to everyone who has contributed so far, thank you so much. Join us again, join us again tomorrow when senior editor of the scientific journal Nature, Henry G., will discuss his new book, a Very Short History of Life on Earth, 4.6 Billion Years in 12 Pithy Chapters. We'll see you then.